I want to ask a question. This question is aimed at born-again believers. My question to you is, who is the ultimate authority in your life? My follow-up question is, are you sure? Have you tested it? Okay, I'm going to help you test whether what you just said is really true. Hello and welcome to the Love Key Church podcast, where we share our church's message of the week. My name is Heinz Winkler, and together with my wife, children, and our leadership team, we host Love Key Church here in Somerset West, online, and on this podcast. It is our mission to help you to encounter God, align with His purposes, reign in life, and help others to do the same. We trust that you will find this message empowering, encouraging, and inspiring. Please share it with your friends and family and write a review for us. And a huge thank you goes out to those who have already done so. May you be thoroughly blessed as you listen to this message. We have been journeying through the book of Romans. Has anyone noticed that? <laughs> uh, we, our series is called One Gospel, One Church because there's one gospel for the one church of Jesus Christ. Has that started to sink in a bit in your spirit being? You know, sometimes we need to hear something over and over and over again before the revelation drops in our spirit. Because I don't know about you, but this, this Bible has been around for 2,000 years odd. And every time, and I've had one since I was 16, even earlier than that. been really reading it since I was 16. And every time I read it, and, and I can read the same scripture, and God can break open something new. Amen? So there's always more in the Word of God, and we've been seeing that and experiencing that in a great way. It's been the one series. We started with all these amazing things, God's one standard that we can only receive by um, one way through faith to get the gift Jesus Christ. He's the one gift and we've seen all these beautiful things that God has broken open to us. And last week, we spoke about Romans 12. Yo, how was that word? Powerful, just to remind us of how important it is for us to be united in Jesus as a church. Amen. Can you see that Jesus, that God values the unity of his church? It's an important value to him. And now out of that... We're getting into chapter 13, and the, the heading for today's message is One Authority, One Authority, and we're going to talk about God's authority in our lives, but we're also going to talk about the reality of man's authority in our lives, because Romans 13 kicks off with that. But before we start reading, I want to ask a question. But this question is aimed at born-again believers. I hope there are some of them in the house today, some born-again born again believers. Moi, my question to you is, who is the ultimate authority in your life? Who is the ultimate authority in your life? If it is God and you truly believe that, would you be bold enough to put up your hand? Say, yes, God is the ultimate authority in my life. My follow-up question is, are you sure? 
Have you tested it? Okay? I'm going to help you test whether what you just said is really true. Have you ever done anything because a man-made law said so, but you knew it wasn't God's will, but you did it anyway? Anyone? So is God the ultimate authority in your life? Was he in that moment? We've all had those challenging moments where you're torn. Like, I know this is not God's will, but if I say something or I don't do it, then, you know, I'll be in some kind of trouble by a man-made law, man-made rule. We're going to delve into that interesting space a little bit today. Here's another question. Do you really love your neighbor as yourself? Anyone want to put up their hands for that one? Do you really love your neighbor as you love yourself? First you have to go, do I love myself? (laughs) Most of you do. The fact that you are dressed and you're looking kind of okay today, I'm kidding, you look beautiful. The fact that you pulled something through your hair and, you know, put some soap on, you love yourself. You gave yourself some food, you took care of yourself, right? You love yourself. Do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? If you don't love your neighbor as you love yourself, then technically you have not made God the ultimate authority in your life. Because according to him, that's the second most important commandment that he's given us, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's another part of what we're going to read in Romans 13 today. But first, we're going to establish from Scripture who the one authority over the whole earth actually is and should be in our lives. And we're going to do it by the Word of God. Are you ready to read the Word of God? This is so powerful. This is what changes us. Before we start reading, let us pray. Holy Spirit, I call upon you to come and minister in each of us right now. In your word, it says that if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we will be blessed. And we hunger and thirst for your righteousness, for your word. We hunger and thirst for the truth of your word. And we pray right now, we choose to make our hearts good soil for your word, for the seed of your word. And we receive it by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 1 from verse 18 This is a part of a very long sentence that Paul wrote. I'm just going to pick it up to get to the main point. He says, Let the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what's the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, can someone say mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above, everyone say far above, all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he puts all things, everyone say all things, He puts all things under His, Jesus' 
feet, and he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 4 from verse 1 to 6. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, he loves that word, Paul, you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness with long suffering, that's patience, bearing with one another in love. It hooks on to our lesson from last week. Bearing with one another in love, endeavoring, that is an active, purposeful effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, we did that last week, one Spirit, we did that a couple of weeks ago, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, everyone say one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Colossians 1, 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things, everyone say all things, were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all. All things and in him all things consist and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross." Revelation 1, 17, John is speaking as he encounters Jesus. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and death. That's my Jesus. I don't know if you know him. That is my king. Thank you, Jesus, for healing that baby. Thank you, Lord. Can you see that our God is all-powerful? One scripture I didn't put in there is in Genesis. refers to him as the judge over the whole earth. Are we in agreement that God and his son Jesus Christ has all authority? Do you believe that? All right. Now, we're going to read Romans 13 from verse 1. For those who are joining us today and are not aware of everything, we have been journeying through this letter, a letter which Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome was a divided church. They were started by Jewish believers. The Jews were cast out of Rome because there was a fight between them over Christ. 
and the emperor at the time cast them out. And then later, a new emperor was in, uh, um, was in charge, and he brought the Jews back. But in the meantime, the, the Gentiles took over the Christian church. Now the Gentiles were leading, and the Jews were coming back, and now it was this mix. And the Jewish believers wanted to keep Jewish law, and the Gentile believers were like, no, we are free in Christ. And they had all these tensions. We've been delving through a lot of that. And Paul takes on the Jews for their legalistic ways, and he takes on the Gentiles for their um, license way, where they just want to do whatever they can or do whatever they want under the, the word of grace. So he's been speaking to both groups and also to them as a group together. So that's a very quick summary of where we're at. Now, Romans 13 from verse 1. Let every soul, in some translations it says person, let every person, um, but the word, original word actually means the whole of a person. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. That means you will have praise from the authorities. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. It means he doesn't have a sword by his side for nothing. He will use it. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. How many of you guys love that piece of scripture? I can't wait to pay my taxes now, right? Thank you, Paul. I wish that was the only place in the New Testament that this is written, but it is not. So to be fair, I'm going to tell you the other two scriptures that I found as well. 1 Peter 2 from verse 13. This is now Peter writing. He says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the prayers of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Titus 3 from verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. These are very clear instructions to the church. By the way, Titus was a letter from Paul to Titus who was leading a church. But, now we've read all of this. You can see that it's clear from the scriptures that in principle, they are calling Christians, born again believers, who know that God is their, is first. 
Because they also teach that you must put God first. And now they're telling us, no, but your governing authorities, you need to submit to them because that's given by God. It's put in place by God. All right? Yeah, are we all on the same page? You understand where we're at? Okay. But we also read of at least three instances where Paul was arrested for not following the governing authorities. Have you read that in the scriptures? The, the, the resources that I got hold of says that he was probably arrested way more than that. But between him and Luke, who wrote Acts, they just included three times that he was actually arrested. So why would Paul write this in the letters to the Roman church? Well, we know that he didn't keep this instruction all the time himself. I'd like to share a scripture with you that might shed a bit of light. All right, This is Acts 5. Verse 27 to 32. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them. So the apostles, the disciples who are out proclaiming Jesus, they've now been brought before the Pharisees. It says, and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter, the same Peter that we just read a letter from, and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. Ruling words. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us who obey Him. And after this, if you keep reading, it gets quite nasty. The mob freak out. They get the Romans to arrest them. The Romans are arresting them, but they don't know why. They just see a mob of Jewish believers shouting that these people must be um, caught. And so they put them in chains. They're like, why are we doing this? <laughs> And then they all shout together. They can't hear what's, what the actual accusation is. So they take them into the barracks actually for their own safety. But they are in chains. And then Paul asks them, can I preach? Or Peter says, can I preach to them? And they let him preach. And then he says his bit. And then they want to just kill them even more. Because he's preaching the truth. So that's a whole interesting story that you can go and read. Okay. So if we read this passage, we ought to obey God rather than men. And we read this first seven verses of Romans 13. We have to ask the question, what are we to do? What are we to do with these pieces of information, these principles that we are called to live according to? I believe that the clue to what the answer is lies in these verses that Paul wrote. So let's look at them again. In uh, Romans 13, it says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. He says, Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. So the way that Paul describes authority is that they are people who are not a terror. In other words, when you do good things, they won't come and harass you and make your life difficult. It also says, they are God's ministers 
to you for good. So Paul is calling these people in authority, God's ministers for your good. He keeps referring to them as that. Not a terror to good works, but only when you do evil. He even calls them an avenger. Have you ever thought of your government officials as being avengers? Like the superheroes. They are there to take, you know, when someone steps out of line, we're going to avenge them. Have you ever seen one of them in a cape or with a big hammer? (laughs) Maybe a small hammer. Uh, He calls them the avengers. How many of you look at your government officials and go, man, I'm so glad they're there. They're avenging those who have been wronged. Anyone? It's almost like he's describing the ideal type of governing authority. A government that does good, that fights evil. One that protects its citizens from evil behavior of other citizens, which that sounds good, right? This is, in other words, a government that has an executive, a legislative, and a judicial setup that makes executes and uphold laws in line with what is good. He's using this word good. But what does good mean? Good to you means something different than good to someone else. Because two men can look at the same bucky and the one will say, this is a good bucky and the other one will say, no, it's not. No, because you'll have a Hilux guy and you'll have a Ford guy and they will have an opinion about what is good. So what is good? What is good governance? According to Paul. Well, we know that Paul is a born again believer. He loves Jesus and he's spreading the gospel. So it, it would make sense that he is saying good referring to God's standard of good. Would you agree? And he's calling them God's ministers for good to you. So it would seem that he is making an, he is creating an ideal situation that authorities put in place by God should be doing the following things. Now Paul is not saying, and therefore I'm not saying directly, that a government should uphold all of God's word in order for Christians to submit to them. That's not what I'm saying. And that's not what Paul is saying either. Because he knows the Romans who he's talking about are not, it's not a Christian nation. But they are a nation who liked order. They had rules and they had things in place. And they were a very civilized society for the time. Before they had crazy emperors and they all lost their minds. (laughs) There was a time when they were very ordered and civilized. Of course not. We are not talking about waiting on a government that is biblical. But I do believe that in far as it does line up with the basics of God's word, like, hey, we are not going to let people murder each other. We are not going to let people steal. We are not going to let people hurt other people and let them get away with it. As long as it lines up with those basic values of the Bible, this is, I think, what Paul is talking about. He's calling the church to submit to good governing authority that lines up in principle with a healthy society. Would you agree? Now the Greek word for submit or subject that we get here, where he says we need to subject ourselves or submit ourselves to the governing authorities, 
I found a really good explanation by a guy called Greg Herrick um, who writes an article on Bible.org. He says, this form of submission is a willing, intelligent submission to the authorities out of humility because one is conscious of God's appointing and working through them. Underlying Paul's injunction is the understanding that the government is doing what God has appointed it for, that it knows between right and wrong. It knows the difference between right and wrong and carries out its role of maintaining harmony among the citizens, end quote. Does that sound like something that makes sense to you? Makes sense to me. In other words, Paul is calling the church in Rome under Roman rule to submit to the governing authorities of the day because humble submission to rulers who keep order and infrastructure and administrate the state well is God's will. And it's a prerequisite for a stable civilization. Our God is a God of order and he is ultimately the authority. And people are put in positions of authority because of his grace. So in principle, we need to submit and subject willingly through humility in line with a governing, uh, a governing, what is, a governance that is in principle lining up with good, goodness according to God's word. Now we've seen this confirmed by what I read to you also, the other letter by Peter, the one of Paul to Titus. But we've also, we've also heard the same Peter say that we will follow God when men's rules go against God. All right? So we have that question before us today, especially in the society we are living in today. Paul wrote that letter to a church in Rome. But we as a church today in South Africa, in the Helderberg, we need to read this, these principles and we need to discern what does it mean to us. How do we apply this in our lives? Where is that point, that line, where a Christian recognize that what the governing authorities are doing or allowing or forcing them to do is beyond the scope of Romans 13, verse 1 to 7. What is that point? What is that line? Where's the line that I can confidently step into what is known as civil disobedience? Because I've discerned that I now need to obey God rather than man. To help us understand where that line is, I'm going to share some amazing stories in the Bible of civil disobedience. Would you like to hear some stories? The first one we find in Exodus 1. It's the Hebrew midwives. We read about those brave women who defied the orders of Pharaoh and kept the Hebrew male babies alive. Pharaoh ordered that all male babies must be killed. Can you see that even in the pagan world long ago, there was a hatred towards the newborn, a hatred towards babies, towards new life. There was a hatred towards the Jewish people. They were getting too many. We have to make them less. They are taking over this country. That's what Pharaoh is thinking. And the midwives were told, when you catch a Hebrew male child, kill it. Throw it in the river. Let it drown. They disobeyed the governing authority. 
And they say, we will not obey you. We will obey God in this matter. The parents of Moses, Exodus 2, verse 1 to 2. We find the account of how the parents of Moses hid the baby for three months. To highlight how right they were to obey God rather than man, we see that the parents were mentioned in the hall of faith, so-called, in Hebrews 11. They are mentioned for hiding their boy from the authorities. Elijah, 1 Kings 18. It's a memorable chapter where we read about how the prophet challenged King Ahab and the false prophets. This was not the first time he resisted the evil king. And we read in verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab did not like <laughs> Elijah. But do you, how many of you know that he killed 450 Baal prophets after challenging them and after you know, making very funny jokes about their God? Mordecai, who, know, who knows who Mordecai is? From the book of Esther, chapter 3, King Ahasuerus, I can't really pronounce that name, has promoted Haman and commanded the king's servants to bow down and pay homage to him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. As we read in verses 3 to 4, the servants asked, why do you transgress the king's commandment? And then when they spoke to him a day after that, he would not listen to them. Why did he not bow? Because he doesn't serve a king the way he serves Yahweh, Jehovah. He would not bow. And then Esther herself, when, he, when Mordecai hears of Haman's complaint to the king of the disobedience of the Jews, because now he's using it to, to get rid of the Jews. They didn't want to bow to the king. They are, they're refusing. He informs Esther and she says, it's not permitted for her to see the king. It was illegal for her to simply walk into the court and address the king. Completely illegal. Anyone who tried it will be killed on the spot. And she knew this. And he said to her, you need to go. If you don't go, God will send someone else. But you and your family will perish. But isn't it perhaps that you were born for such a time as this? And she went. And she said, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. She went into a possible certain death situation for her God, defying the authorities of the day. Why? To save her people. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 38 from verse 1 to 6. Poor Jeremiah often fell afoul of the authorities on the day. In this passage, we learn about Jeremiah defied the Jewish officials telling the Israelites, including the soldiers, not to remain in Jerusalem, but to go with the invading Babylonians. As a result of his disobedience, he ends up being thrown into a miry pit by the officials. Daniel's friends, who can name their names? Sadrach, Sondag, and Mondag. In this famous passage, we read about how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego defied King Nebuchadnezzar and refused to bow to his massive image that they made. Once again, not bowing to the gods of men. They are refusing to bow to the gods of men. Because of this obedience, they were cast into a blazing furnace that was so hot, it killed the soldiers that made the fire. And they said, we will not bow our God will save us, but even if our God doesn't save us, we will not bow. It's the same boldness as Esther. If I perish, I perish. But for my God, I will not bow down. 
and we know the story. They were in there and the, the, the people outside could see a fourth person and that they weren't scorched. Not even a hair on their bodies was singed. Daniel, the government officials of Babylon urged the king to establish a law forbidding making a petition to any other God or man for 30 days. Knowing what Daniel does every day. Daniel saw the edict. He went to his house with an open window and prayed three times a day as he always does. And they went and clicked on him and he was thrown into the lion's den. But King Darius, who was the king at the time, felt sorry for Daniel because he loved Daniel. But he had been manipulated into doing something so that those guys can get rid of Daniel. Because Daniel was what? He was showing them up. He knew more than they because he had God's wisdom and they had witchcraft and they didn't want him around. So they manipulated the king to get rid of Daniel. But it kind of turned on them because the Bible says that he survived the night. The lions, didn't, the lions' mouths were closed by an angel. King Darius brought him out. He said, this is your God is the only God that we will serve. And then all the guys who, who, who made the king throw them in there, he had them and their wives and their children thrown into the lion's den. The wise men, now we're in the New Testament, the wise men that came from far to pay homage to King Jesus. They were told by King Herod, who were trying to find out where this king is, to come and tell him. But they had a dream and they were told not to go. So they disobeyed the king. Jesus and his disciples, they were a few times complained to that they ate, um, they, they took uh, grain on the Sabbath directly from, from the, the plants and they were eating it and they were said, you can't harvest on the Sabbath. Jesus healed on the Sabbath and he got in trouble for that. And we have Peter and John who were arrested for preaching Jesus and they got into, the, got into jail. We've got Paul and Silas who were arrested for preaching Jesus. And many other instances in the book of Acts, we see that when it comes to choosing between the law of man and the call of God, they obeyed God and not man. So now we have all of this before us. The pattern we see is that when it comes to civil disobedience for Christians, it's only acceptable when the law or ordinance of the human authority goes directly against God's instruction or ordinance. And in a New Testament, New Covenant dispensation, it has a lot to do with whether one is permitted to preach the name of Jesus, to proclaim the gospel, to shout to the world, who is this Christ and Him crucified? That is where the authorities get upset. How many of you remember that not too long ago, we were forced to not go to church? We were not allowed to gather. It was said it's for our safety. It was said that the church is not an essential service. In that same time, in nations like Canada, pastors who refused to bow down to those rules, were literally arrested, dragged off in cuffs, put in prison. In California, churches were forced not to sing. When they started to go back to churches, they said, you can go back, but you can't sing. 
literally forcing people to not live out what God commands in His Word. Some of you may know the amazing, brave, bold worship leader, Sean Foyt. Some might agree, some might not agree with his ways. I myself am a big fan. He's one of my heroes. He led a movement called Let Us Worship. When they said, you can't have church anymore, he said, okay, game on. And he said, the church has left the building. So he started calling protest worship events because under the protest laws of America, he could gather as a protest action and they couldn't do much about it. So Let Us Worship was a protest worship movement. They didn't just do that. They went to the most difficult places. They went to the spot where George Floyd was arrested and where they were looting and rioting and craziness. He went right there into that place. No one wanted to go with him. None of his musicians, none of the people that he knows well wanted to go with him. You know who ended up going with him into the most difficult place? He got a hold of some Russian musicians. (laughs) Russians who knew Jesus, who fled from Russia because of its communistic, socialistic ways. They said to Sean, can we please play in your band? Because we see that what happened in our country is happening here and we want to be part of stopping it. That's how we got a band. And they brought their sound system and they were able to lead worship. And then suddenly people got saved. People got free from drug abuse. They got baptized in the same street where people were rioting days before. That is the kind of boldness I believe we need at this time in the world. And what Sean is doing is not for everyone, I know. But in every one of our spheres of influence, we each may come to a point where we have a very big decision to make. What happened in 2020 and 2021 and even up to 2022, I'm not going to speak death, but it can happen again. Depending on which conspiracy theory you believe, that was just a practice round from the powers that be. If you read Revelation, and if you believe that the end times are near, it's very possible that we might see that and worse. But on top of that, we are locally in South Africa being faced with huge challenges on the horizon. Our our legislature is drawing up Bible-defying bills founded in woke liberals liberal ideology and philosophy that are trying to push things into law and then force it upon us that will capture our nation and and, and take over in a way that none of us want to see. The main attack is on God's ordinances of man, woman, marriage, and family. They're coming for it. They want to tear it down. It's already happened in many other nations with devastating effects. Some of you will know about the Bela Bill, the Hate Speech Bill. There's now the One Marriage Act that they're trying to push through where they say that all marriages are the same. They are redefining marriage. They're saying, no, no, no. Marriage is not between one man and one woman. It can be polygamous. It can be one man, one man, one woman, one woman, two men, one woman, whatever. Literally, 
anything under one act. And if you are a marriage officer and you refuse to marry someone because you don't agree with the marriage that they want to step into, you can be fined or arrested. This is where we are heading. And it's closer than some of you realize. Because I know, it's nice to keep your head in the sand. It's nice to be unaware. Ignorance is bliss. I get it. It's fun to not know about these things. But it's coming. And I want you to know... We have to realize this. The ultimate goal is to rip children away from parents, to rip marriages apart, and to redefine everything that God has laid out in his word. They want to completely redefine it. The men who were at the men's conference will know that Simon showed us in such a practical way the history of this thing, where it comes from, and how in their literature it is It is in so many words written down, we are for the abolishment of family. And they are throwing hundreds of thousands of rands and dollars at countries like South Africa and trying to get these things pushed through. Some of the stuff they try to get through with no one noticing because they know it will get a lot of kickback. But once it's law, it's a problem. So we as Christians, we need to ask ourselves, what can we do? What can we do to stop these things? What will we do as believers if confronted by these laws that are evil according to God? What will we do when the government official is not doing good towards me, but actually doing evil towards me? Not like what Paul said, that they are God's ministers for your good, but now they are someone else's ministers for evil. What do we do? What if the good I'm doing is now called evil by the governing authority? Because I say marriage is between one man and one woman. That's good, according to God. But according to the world, saying marriage is between one man and one woman, that's hate speech. And if the hate speech bill goes through, then for just standing here saying it, if I hurt even one of your people's feelings, just your feelings, you can go to the Human Rights Commission, you can go to the police, and you can have me arrested because I hurt your feelings, because you don't agree with the good statement based on the Bible that I made. Because according to you, what I said is evil. And this is exactly the times that the Bible predicted. What is good will be called evil, and what is evil will be called good. And what was their shame will be their pride. We are living in those times. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to educate you. I'm not trying to sow fear and paranoia, quite the contrary. We know the God who has authority over all. That's why I established that in the beginning. That doesn't change. That doesn't change. But we have other things that are operating in this realm. Principalities and powers that are using people and abusing people and manipulating people to get these things through. And it's all about greed. It's all about greed, money, power. All the same old things. The things that are brewing and heading for us has a spiritual, legal, and philosophical facet. As we've read in Romans 13 um, and also 2 Corinthians 10 and Ephesians 6, we need to be ready and equipped for the spiritual battle. But we also need to educate ourselves in apologetics, 
we need to understand our legal rights and we need to be certain about our philosophical stance in terms of our belief. And this is important for parents. Parents, I cannot stress this enough. We cannot only tell our children, you must believe in Leviesis. That's not enough. Your child needs to see in you that you have a personal relationship with the living God. That you love Him, that you fear Him, that you know Him intimately. And that when you open your mouth, what your children hear is a relationship with God so that they can model it. You must teach your children what the Bible means, not these watered-down children's Bibles that just tell them the stories and not the why. doesn't empower them to walk in the authority that Christ has given them, but just tells them pretty stories. And not so they get to one day and go, oh, so for the Christmas isn't real, the Easter bunny isn't real, and the tooth fairy isn't real, oh, so Jesus must not be real either. What else have you lied about? That happens. It happens all the time. And if your child is not trained in the ways of the Lord, he, will get to, he or she will get to university and the first time a woke activist asks them a few difficult questions, philosophical, ideological questions about their faith that they can't answer, they're going to go, oh, I don't know what I believe. I'll listen to you because you seem confident and you seem to know what you're talking about and I like what you're hearing because it's you know, giving my flesh goosebumps. But it's evil and it will kill you. Simon Brace from Rosho Christie, who spoke at our men's conference, he works on Poch campus. He says, you have no idea how bad it is on campuses. He sits session after session, afternoon after afternoon, him and his wife, they sit with broken students who have swallowed this horrible Kool-Aid about woke ideology and their lives are ruined because there's no life in it. It's just death. What are we going to do, Christian? What are you going to do? Are you going to wake up? We're going to get to that part now. I am upset. I'm not upset with you. I'm upset with the devil. Because he has gained a lot of ground. Because Christians have been asleep. But I want you to read what happens next in this chapter. Verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any commandment are all summed up in this, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I do have these scriptures up on the screen. Um, You can just check there from verse 8. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, at first glance, this seems like separate from the first seven verses. But I think it's actually a continuing thought. But Because what if Paul was continuing his thought about submitting to governing authorities because a healthy society can very easily be built upon and flourish on the second most important commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you love your neighbor, you will not harm your neighbor. So a good authority will be happy with you because you love your neighbor. Do you see that? It's connected. 
Because the rules that a good government will put in place will basically come down to the same thing. Hey guys, don't hurt one another, live in peace. I will, because I love my neighbor. I won't steal from them. I won't take their wife from them. I won't covet what they have. I won't um, bear false witness and lie about them. Because all those things should be punishable by law. And it is in a healthy nation. Do we see that? What if everyone would just love their neighbor? Imagine that. But us Christians struggle to do just that. In church, now we want to save a country. How will we do that? Hello? Can we just start by loving our neighbor as well? Very quiet. Pin drop moment. See, you're uncomfortable because you know how hard this is. Yo, okay, I'm sensing something in the spirit. When we truly love one another, a healthy, good government should not need to bother you because your good behavior will line up with their laws. Now, let's keep reading. And to this, and do this. So in other words, do this. Do this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself so that you don't do all these bad things. While you are doing this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Can you see that Paul now connects the thought about loving your neighbor to an urgent plea to recognize the urgency of the moment we are living in? He's obviously talking to the Roman church and the moment that they are living in. And the salvation that he's talking about that's near might sound weird to you because like, but I thought they're already saved. Yes, but you have to remember when we started the series, I explained to you there are three different levels of salvation. Justification makes you free from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is the process that all of us are in right now. We are being set free from the power of sin. But the final one is the salvation of glorification, which is when we are free of the presence of sin. You remember that? This is the salvation he's talking about, the salvation that comes when Jesus returns or when we die and we step into eternity with him. Are you with me? That is what he's talking about. He's urging his readers, the Gentile and Jewish believers in Rome, that because the ultimate salvation moment is near, they need to wake up and take things seriously. They they need to take things more seriously. He says, the night is ending and the day is coming. (coughs) The day is known by light. Would you agree? We've got light because it's day. The night is known by darkness. Straight after that, he says, they should cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What happens at night? Most people sin. At night, in darkness, when no one is watching, why are bars and clubs dark? Because you think you can get away with it. Also, because when you're drunk and it's dark, the girl looks prettier. 
You guys know the movie Coyote Ugly? When she asks her, where does that name Coyote Ugly come from? It's like when you wake up after a night you shouldn't have had next to someone that doesn't look the way they looked last night and you need to get out from under them, you will bite off your own arm to get away like a coyote that's stuck somewhere. It's a horrible picture, but that's where it comes from. It's getting real. He's saying to this church, probably mostly to the Gentiles, stop partying and wake up. Why would he make this urgent plea? It sounds to me like he knew that some of the believers were just kind of cruising through life, not taking their salvation seriously. But more than that, they were blind to the times that they were living in. And because of this, they've become relaxed about holy living. They were blind to the times and they became relaxed. Paul says, no, wake up. See what's going on. Pay attention. Put on the armor of light. Walk properly. He says, walk properly as in the day, not as at night when you've had a few too many. Walk properly. Did you get that picture? And then he gets specific. It seems like some of the church members were getting drunk, having parties, were guilty of sexual immorality, and were involved in strife and envy. They were doing things that are against the word of God. I see this scripture as a prophetic warning to us to wake up and to be the the wake-up call to the church today. Wake up, O sleeper, is what he is saying. Be aware of the times you are in. You say you are the light. Hey, I'm the light. I love Jesus. He's the ultimate authority in my life. Really? Are you sure? Does your life show that you are of the light? Or do you sometimes also fall out of one of those dark bars because we have been drinking and dancing and doing what your flesh wants? And then you stroll in here and say, I am of the light. Yay. Praise Jesus. Cast off the darkness, he says. Put on the light, the armor of light. Put on Jesus. We cannot play around anymore. The time is now to live the holy lives that we've been called to live. And if you live the holy life that you're called to live and you love your neighbor, then a good authority will have no problem with you because you're a responsible citizen. And no one here is calling anyone to civil disobedience on basic good rules. And if you miss that, then you didn't listen. Don't go and do what you want because Heinz said we must know. The rules that are good are there for a reason and they should be complied to, all right? Let me say that categorically. But when we are living like people of the light that God has called us to be, we will be good citizens. Can you see that? But if we are in any way, shape, or form part of darkness, or darkness is still hanging on us in some way, because maybe you're getting drunk at parties, maybe you're watching pornography, maybe you're married and you're flirting with an old fling from school, because you know what, she really understands me. 
And she hears my heart. And my wife is just shouting at me all day. And I've got a good excuse. I'm justified. I can speak to this lady because she's nice. Or some stranger. Any of these things. It's not who God has called us to be. Wake up. You are asleep if you are dabbling in things of the darkness. You see, if we let some of the darkness hang on us, we will not be able to resist or stand against the flood of evil that can come our way in these last days. One of the enemy's most effective weapons over the last 50 years has been to desensitize everyone. They start with a little bit of that and a little bit of this and a little bit of a gay marriage on TV and then a gay kiss and then suddenly it's just normal. And now that opened the door to, are you a boy or a girl? Well, I don't know. I'm non-binary. Now that's possible. What are you today? I don't know. I'm fluid. I'll tell you in an hour. What the, how's that, how did we get here? It's insane. It's complete insanity. And it's all geared at destroying family and marriage and children's lives. Do you know why? What is, what is the, I said this last week, I'm gonna say it again. What's the enemy's mandate? Kill, steal, destroy. What? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is made up of what? People. So he wants to kill, steal, and destroy all of us. How do you do that? You make sure that there are no people. If you can't kill, if he can't kill you while you're alive, he's gonna find a way to kill you before you were born. So that's why abortion is at an all-time high in the world. The enemy is trying to kill babies. Over 250 million babies have been aborted in Russia alone since they started in the 1920s. They were the first to legalize it. America did it in, 19, in the 1970s with Roe v. Wade, which is now overturned. But since they started, 65 million babies have been murdered in the womb. Our nation stands at a whopping five and a half million since we started making it legal. And those are just the ones we know of. We have blood on our hands. And if he can't kill the baby in the womb, what will he do? He will convince a whole generation that no, you are not a boy, you are not a girl, you can choose whatever you want to be. And then you can physically mutilate your own body so that you can't reproduce. No children. No one man, no one woman, no marriage, according to God, means no children. This veil that is over the world right now, they don't even see it. They are falling for the plans of the enemy. And they have been able to put it into freaking legal terms in laws. And they are forcing it upon people. They want all of us to play along with the fantasy. What will we do, O oh Christian? Will you wake up, O oh sleeper, and stand for the truth of the word of God? Will you love your neighbor so much that you'll speak the truth of the goodness of God? That is the very serious, important question before us today. Let us settle today who is the Lord of our lives. 
Who is the ultimate one authority in our lives? Who do we really fear? God or man? Yes, good laws are good to follow. And we have to. We've been called to do that. But we need to get ready to put on the armor of light and put on Jesus and be ready. Put off the darkness, put on the light and be ready. Read your Bible. Get yourself sharpened up with some basic apologetics. Train your children well. Be prayed up and be ready. As I said before to you, in this church, we are raising warrior Christians. We are going to be ready. We are going to be ready for whatever the enemy wants to throw at us. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Love Key Church podcast message of the week. I trust that you had a life-changing encounter with God that will help you to align with His purposes so that you can be one step closer to reigning in life. And may you be inspired to share this with others. Have a great week and remember to listen again next week or you can catch us live online or come visit us in person. May God bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you and your loved ones. God bless you. Bye-bye.